you would, take a copy of God's Word and turn to Ephesians chapter 4 this morning. If you're using a Bible there in the Purack, our text is on page 978 this morning. We're continuing our faith-focused sermon series here on Sunday mornings and as Pastor Jason said before the service, also in the evening. It's almost as if in the mornings we're looking at the 30,000, 50,000 foot, foot view and then in the evenings we're drilling down on a more specific area. Uh, we looked at our identity as those made in the image of God the first week. Last week, our identity as those redeemed and united to Christ. This morning, it is our sanctified identity. We are conformed and we are to be pursuing conformity to the image of Christ. This is the teaching of the Bible concerning our sanctification. A good definition of sanctification is from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, number 35. The answer is sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. Sanctification is God working in our life, restoring us to who he created us to be, but it is a thing of progression, enabled more and more to die to sin. Last week, uh, Pastor Jason took us to Ephesians chapter 4, and there in speaking about our union with Christ, do you remember in, uh, it was chapter 1, verse 4, he said, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. If we're going to think about biblical identity, we need to think about growing in holiness. And that means, basically, now that you are a Christian, what is your relationship to sin? The passage we're going to look at this morning is actually two long sentences in the Greek. The first sentence runs from Chapter 4, verse 17 to 19, it's 54 words in the original, and there the Apostle Paul appeals for Christians. He makes appeal to them to think differently than the world around them. And then, in doing so, he engages in a description of the self-seeking and ungodly lifestyle of those who do not know Christ. And then the next sentence is verses 20 through 24, it's 59 words in the original. And there the apostle wants Christians to remember why and how they are to live differently than the world around them. Before we read God's word, let us go to God again and ask for his help in hearing the preaching and reading of his word. Would you pray with me? Our great God and Savior, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come to you in praise in adoration this morning, and we bring our request now, Heavenly Father, that we would, through the reading and preaching of your word, grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, so that our lives may be conformed to his image, and that we might bring him glory. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Hear the word of God from Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 17 through verse 24. 
Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Amen. And that ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. How you think about yourself changes over time. Not to oversimplify it, but in high school, a major influencer on most of our identities was our friends. You find yourself dressing a certain way, listening to certain music, because that's what you and your friends like. In college, now you have a major, a field of study that somehow interacts with your personal identity and how you understand yourself. Maybe you're an English major or an engineering major, or a bowling industry management and technology major. It's a great major to learn and prepare for employment in the bowling industry. It is a real major. It is taught at a university in Indiana. I hear that it's a very exclusive program. But don't think that once you get your diploma and land a job, that figuring out your identity is over. There's still so much to figure out. Your sense of identity will continue to change. But through all the different stages of life and all the changes that take place in our identity, there remains things about ourselves that we wish would change. Things we wish we could change. We all have things that have become part of our identities that we wish were not part of our identities. Here's some bad news. If you struggle with anger, that anger is not just going to go away one day on its own. If you struggle with greed, that greed is not just going to go away one day on its own. If you struggle with lust, that lust is not going to just go away one day on its own. Whatever sinful traits you have today will only be a little bigger tomorrow and bigger next year and even bigger in the decade to come if they are not dealt with. And these things may not show up in the same way in everyone's life. Some people, their anger may grow to literal murder, and other people, it will kill themselves on the inside. It will deaden their relationships. If you are left to yourself, apart from God's saving grace, sin will always be the most powerful shaper of your identity. Your identity will experience change through the years, but not for the better. If you don't have Christ, your life-dominating sins They will define the real you. 
Thankfully, there is hope. The Christian faith addresses sin in our identity. When Christ saves us, he unites us to himself. As Pastor Jason preached last week from Ephesians chapter 1, because of our union with Christ, we have been redeemed from our sin. And our sins have been forgiven. From the moment a sinner trusts in Christ as their Savior, their relationship to sin changes forever. The penalty of sin has been lifted from their life because of Christ's death. And the power of sin has been broken because of Christ's resurrection. For the Christian, sin no longer shapes your identity. If you have Christ, your relationship to him defines the real you. Here in the book of Ephesians, for those who are trusting in Christ, in the first three chapters, the Apostle Paul has been describing the real you. And now here in verse 17, he says, Now this I say. He's tying his instruction here about how the Christians are to live in a sinful world to what he taught them in the first three chapters. He taught them who they are, and now he's saying this is how you are to live out your identity in Christ in a fallen world. They are those who are chosen in Christ, blessed in Christ, saints, children of God, inheritors with Christ. Remember, Paul's first audience here was predominantly made of Gentiles, those who were not born into God's covenant people, And he told them, because of Christ, you are fully in the people of God. You are now the people of God. Now, in chapters 4 through 6 of this letter, he wants to show how their new identity necessitates change in conduct, a change in lifestyle. And the reason why there's a, a necessary change that must happen is that though the penalty of sin has been paid and the power of sin has been defeated, the presence of sin remains in the Christian's life until they see their Savior face to face. And the Christian must choose to either conform to their old way of living or be conformed to their new identity in Christ. I want us to consider our passage under three headings. The first from verse 17, I want us to see the exhortation for Christians to live differently. Then, in verses 18 through 19, I want us to see Paul's expose of the condition and lifestyle of those who reject God. And then, in verses 20 through 24, we have the exhortation to embrace our new identity in Christ and to live accordingly. Verse 17, look back there with me. The exhortation for Christians to live differently. He wants us to live in a way that's different than our pre-Christian lives. The Ephesians and Christians today are to separate themselves from the lifestyle they once lived. Verse 17, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. There the Apostle Paul saying, the basis for my instructions here is that he insists in the Lord. He's imploring them on behalf of the Lord 
that they no longer walk a certain way. Now, walk here, Paul is drawing on a Hebrew concept that we find in the scriptures. One's walk is one's lifestyle. So the Apostle Paul isn't just saying, here are some behavior modifications. Because in the scriptures, one's walk means more than just one's conduct. It also includes the attitude and the thoughts that express themselves and come out in the way that one walks through the world. It encompasses the outer and the inner life. Eventually, someone's walk will reveal what is going on on the inside. So in doing so, he's not just saying, don't act like unbelievers. He's saying, it begins with not thinking like unbelievers. And he points to there in verse 17, because of the futility of their minds. Futility here, he's pointing to that the basis for their interpreting the world and making decisions about how to live in the world, there's no meaning behind it. The unbelieving Gentile has a meaningless basis for living. And this word futility, it's helpful to, to point out that it's drawing from the word meaningless, and it's the same word that when they translated the book of Ecclesiastes into Greek, it's the same word here. You remember the message of the book of Ecclesiastes? That life apart from God is vain and meaningless. It's without purpose unless it is ordered around God and his purposes. A companion section in Scripture to this portion of Ephesians chapter 4 is Romans chapter 1. And there in verse 21, the apostle Paul writes, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. He's attaching the unbelieving mind to futile thinking. It is devoid of real meaning because it is devoid of God. The mind here is more than just the ability to reason. It includes the capacity to think, to plan, to make moral judgments and lifestyle choices. In other words, the mind here is referring to the worldview assumptions that guide someone's thoughts about their life. Now imagine the church in Ephesus putting this on the homepage of their website. Surely this would have been offensive to non-Christian Gentile readers. And there were some that could be, quote, unquote, considered more moral among the Gentile unbelieving world. For example, it was the Stoics who claimed to have a coherent worldview that condemned the vices and commended virtue. Paul's problem is that the Gentile mind is not ordered around the revealed will of God. Therefore, even their moral reasoning, their moral thinking in the end is futile because there is no real basis for it. And it leads to a shifting morality. Something could be right today and wrong tomorrow. Something could be wrong today and right tomorrow. Don't we see that in our day? Paul wants Christians to live according to their new identity, and he's pointing out that a person's identity is attached to their worldview, and their worldview is attached to their identity. 
Your worldview will be evidenced in your lifestyle, how you treat others, how you go about your work, how you spend your money. All these things and many others reveal your worldview. Paul is saying to you and I as Christians, don't go back to your old worldview. But if explaining to us that our old way of thinking was futility wasn't enough, he goes on to describe what this worldview produces. We see that in verses 18 through 19. And here is Paul's expose on the condition and lifestyle of those who reject God. Here he is providing for us reasons not to think and live like you used to think and live. Verse 18, look back there with me. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. He's painting a distressing picture of the lives of unbelieving Gentiles. And it progresses from 18 to 19. It goes from worse to worse. Here in verse 18, he gives two characteristics of the ongoing condition of those who do not know God. They are darkened and alienated. They are darkened in their understanding. It means that they are spiritually blind. They don't know that they are blind. They are blind to the fact that they are blind. And as one commentator has said, here we see that spiritual blindness can be more detrimental and harmful than going through without physical sight. Because in spiritual blindness, you're unaware of your true condition until you're given sight. Then it says that they are alienated from the life of God. They are spiritually dead. They are those who are disconnected from the source of life. And God's revealed will for his creatures. There are those walking about, as he described in Ephesians chapter 2 earlier in the letter. They are dead in their sins, but yet still going about obeying the prince and the power of the air. These two phrases, darkness and alienation, are further explained in the second half of the verse, where he says it's the ignorance and the hardness that has come upon them. It is their darkened understanding alienated from the life of God because of ignorance that is in them. How can they be held culpable for their condition if they are ignorant? Can you hold an ignorant person accountable? How many of you have ever been in a situation where you find yourself saying these words? Officer, I thought I was going the speed limit. Maybe just me. Maybe a younger, more immature me, but been there and still held culpable and responsible. But it's more than that. Now, in Romans 1.18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And then in verse 21 again, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. They have rejected God's witness to them, Paul says in Romans 1, because they did not want to honor him. Their ignorance is their willful rejection of what can be known about God. 
And it produces a hardness of heart. There's a sense in which everyone is born with a hard heart of stone in need of the new birth, of regeneration, of a new heart of flesh. But the Bible also leads us to see that hard hearts can get even harder. There's two ways that the sinner's heart gets harder. They harden their own heart towards God, rejecting his witness to them. And then God hardens their heart in judicial response to their not honoring him. The pattern is laid out in Romans 1, 21 through 31. It's well illustrated in the life of Pharaoh in the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 8, verse 32. Exodus chapter 13, verse 15 says that Pharaoh hardens his heart as he rejects what Moses has told him about God. And in other places, four other places in the book of Exodus, Moses tells us that it is God who hardens Pharaoh's heart. They are darkened, alienated, ignorant. And this hardness leads to an even worse condition described in verse 19. There, look again in verse 19, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Those who don't know Christ eventually will demonstrate an obsessive propensity to live for themselves, which takes on a variety of expressions, but here the Apostle Paul says it's commonly seen in an impure lifestyle. They've become callous. They cease to feel pain. They're dead to feeling. We know that religion and our relationship to God must reach beyond our emotions. In the parable of the sower, there were those whose hearts were like the shallow soil and the seed of God's word was not firmly rooted. They received the seed sown and responded with shallow emotional reactions and then were uprooted. But here in verse 19, the picture has gone beyond that. Because they have denied God's witness and general revelation, his witness to their conscience, his witness in creation, his witness in the book of providence, that is history itself, they are completely callous to feeling any desire for God. You see the progression. The unbelievers described one as someone who has denied any yearning for a God or the God for so long that they've become callous and dead to feeling anything towards God. And so in their callousness, there's a desperation to feel, so they give themselves up to sensuality, it says. Sensuality, self-indulgence, manifesting itself in impure actions. And it's interesting here that this is the reverse of Romans 1. In Romans 1, because they suppress the truth about God and do not want to honor him, God gives up the sinner. But here, because the sinner has become so callous, they give themselves up to sensuality and impurity. Impurity here is quite simply the opposite of whatever is holy. And the use of impurity is, is calling us back to Old Testament language where there was the strict, 
purity code of what was clean and unclean. And those purity laws, you could come in contact with something from the outside that would make you ritually unclean. But Paul is not saying that they are ritually unclean. No, he is developing what Christ taught. That impurity comes from within. It starts from within and it manifests in the life. Verse 19 is sadly, there's so many ways we could point to this being illustrated in our day. One that should break our hearts is the phenomenon that has gone across this country. In fact, this past week it has stirred up some controversy near Detroit. It's called Drag Queen Story Hour. This is where drag queens read children's books at public libraries. And in light of these controversies, discern.com posted a social media post from one drag queen with this headline. Drag queen urges parents to keep kids away from drag. Do not ruin your child's life. In the video, this man said that this is not for kids. He says, what has a drag queen ever done to make you respect them? Admire them. They put on makeup, jump on the floor, and ride around. They perform at nightclubs for adults. There's a lot of filth that goes on. And he has more to say. He concludes with saying that exposing and getting kids involved in drag is extremely irresponsible. And he urges parents to keep children home or entertain them with a trip to Disneyland. Chuck E. Cheese or the circus. Here we see the callousness of calling what is wrong right. Here we see the callousness of being given to impurity, so much so that parents need to be rebuked by a drag queen for thinking that drag queen story hour will benefit their children somehow. Now what should be our response to this expose of the condition and lifestyle of those who reject God. There's two immediate responses among many, but I think two that are most important. The first is that each Christian should confess their sins and repent. Paul is telling Christians not to walk like the Gentiles, implying that some of them are vulnerable to forgetting their identity and going back to their old lifestyles. It could be that some have already begun to forget who they are in Christ and they are now looking more like who they were before Christ. No, when we see the callousness of the world, when we see it given over to sensuality and impurity, our first response is to look into our own hearts and confess our sin and to humble ourselves before the throne of God, seeking grace and mercy. The second thing is that we should have a patient witness, recognizing the condition of the unbeliever, recognizing their need for the Holy Spirit's intervention to remove the, the blindness, to remove the callousness. And as we read this description, in verses 18 and 19, we are to say, but for the grace of God, 
this would be me described right here. But since God's grace has saved a wretch like you, you can have a faithful, enduring, patient witness in the world, knowing firsthand that the gospel has power to save. Lastly, let's look at verses 20 through 24 here in closing. The exhortation to embrace their new identity in Christ and to live accordingly. That's what we see here. This is our second sentence. The Apostle Paul wants to give the why and remind them of the how to live differently. Look back at verse 20 and 21. But that is not the way that you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Our new identity is to be based on Christ and his teachings. Our new way of living is to be based on Christ as our model, our example, and how he says life is to be lived. But the Apostle Paul says something very interesting. He says, that is not the way you learned Christ. This is odd. Normally, you learn content. You learn a discipline or even a pattern of behavior. But here he reminds the Ephesians they learned a person. That in taking on the Christian lifestyle, it was not apart from Christ himself. Philippians chapter 3 verse 10. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Colossians 2, verses 6 through 7. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. When they were taught about Christ, they entered into personal communion with Christ because he is alive. He is not dead. They were taught in him. Remember all the things that it says we are in Christ and now even our instructions for living is in him. They receive teaching about the identity and the work of Jesus and his ethical teachings as well. They weren't just taught a different way to live in the world. They didn't just learn about Jesus and his teaching. They received him. There was a real personal connection with Christ because he is the resurrected Lord. Growing up, uh, I often watched some VHS tapes um, called Pistol Pete Homework Basketball. And there was a set of drills and instructions from Pistol Pete himself. That Pistol Pete Maravich the all-time leading NCAA Division I uh, leader in scoring with a career of over 3,600 points, averaging 44 points a game. That Pistol Pete, the one who did that before there was a three-point line or a shot clock. And there, I was able to learn something about basketball from Pete Maravich. Now, if you saw me play today, 
I guarantee you're not going to be able to see that influence in my basketball game, but it was heavily influenced by Pistol Pete. But I never met him. He died when I was still a kid, but I never had the opportunity to meet him. I never had an opportunity to go to one of the basketball camps in which he gave instructions. He did convert to Christianity later in life. I look forward to meeting him one day in heaven. But I learned something of basketball that I really didn't know Pistol Pete in the way that when we learn of Christ, we know Jesus. Paul here in the second half of Ephesians it's time to give the imperatives. It's time to give the commands. It's time to give the rules to live by. But he just doesn't give the rules. He reminds them that he gave them Christ. When we give the offer of the gospel to someone, we're not just giving the rules of Christianity. Parents, when you share the gospel with your kids, you're not just giving them the commands of Scripture. You give them Christ. And when we offer the gospel, we are offering an entire worldview. To believe the gospel changes our entire worldview. There is truth to be believed. There is error to be denied. There is truth to be obeyed. But the scripture is clear. The truth is a person. And there, in 21, it says the truth is in Jesus. We learn in Jesus. We learn Christ from Christ. But this idea that it is something to be learned is helpful. Because as we saw the progression of the unbelieving mind, now we see the progression of the redeemed life. And it is one of learning. And in there, it is with the understanding that you would grow. The Bible never promises an instantaneous, comprehensive, transformed life. We learn and we are learning, making progress. And there will be reverses and retrogressions along the way in sanctification. But Paul has made the point very clear here is that no matter how advanced one is in spiritual maturity or if you're a new Christian, he wants you to know that Christ will never lead you to sin, selfishness, and lewdness. And when those things appear in our life, that is not how we learn Christ. And it is important that the Christian does not reshape Jesus in their image, but they are seeking to be conformed to his image. And he will never lead you to sin. The next three clauses here to finish out 23 and uh, 22 through 24, they depend on the end here of 21. The verb, and we're taught in him, depend, uh, explain the next three clauses. They're the put off the old self, the being renewed in the mind, and then to put on the new self. All of that is what they were taught in Christ. So what the Apostle Paul is pointing to is that at your conversion, this is what happened. You put off the old self. Christ, by his spirit, enlightened your mind, renewed your mind, 
and then you put on a new identity in Christ. But it's not just something that happened. It is something that is the progression of sanctification. So let's think first about verse 22. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Here this is basic repentance. Conversion is in view, but it's describing the lifestyle of repentance. Martin Luther's first thesis of his 99 thesis was when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. The old self here is the vestiges of the old man that still remain. The old man was in Adam. And when you were in Adam, you were under the penalty and power of sin. Now in Christ, redeemed from the penalty and power of sin, but sin still remains all around us, and it wants to cling to your identity. We've moved a couple times, Emily and I, in our married life together for seminary and different reasons. And in doing so, uh, we've, we've had several homes. I've never purchased a home that the previous owner hasn't left stuff behind in. It's always kind of fun. You get to go look in the attic and see what might be there. Who knows? But just because someone left their stuff behind doesn't mean that they have a claim on the property anymore. Christian, you are in Christ. You have a new master. And the old owner has left junk behind, but he is the old owner. There are sinful traits that remain, remnants of our depravity, and we are to put them out of the house, if you would. They are not to be tolerated. They're not to be toyed with. Their very presence is a contradiction in who we truly are. They are to be confessed, repented of. But in here, at the end of verse 22, it says, these things that we're putting off, Paul reminds us that they are corrupt through deceitful desires. The Christian is not to toy with sin because sin is deceptive. Sin is like the crystal blue ocean water to a man dying of thirst. It promises satisfaction in life when in the end it's nothing but poison, that salt water. And that is the negative, to put off the old. And then it says to be renewed in the spirit of your minds in verse 23. Here the Apostle Paul is appealing to the Holy Spirit to reshape our thinking in order to resist the deceitful desires of the old self. Now our English translation it's difficult to see why I'm saying it's the Holy Spirit. Let me give you the case. Nowhere else in the book of Ephesians does Paul refer to the spirit of man. But he does reference the work of the spirit 13 times in the letter. And particularly in earlier statements in his prayers for the church, in chapter 1 and chapter 3, he points to the Holy Spirit's renewing work. In chapter 1, verse 17, he says, the Father of glory may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. And then in verse 16 of chapter 3, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Here, once again, the Apostle Paul is pointing to the renewing work of the Holy Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit is the agent of renewal, the agent of sanctification, and the mind is the object of his renewing work. As Charles Hodge once put it, this is the process by which the soul is restored to God. And then in verse 24, we see the positive of sanctification, to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The new self is in solidarity with Christ and not Adam. And so therefore we are to live lives conformed to this new identity. The idea of putting on includes the daily recognition and growth in the truth of who you are in Christ. But notice that who we are in Christ, it is created. It is a work of the Spirit that has created the new self. That means that it's not an improved version of the old self that has undergone some reformation, but is a new creation created by God. William Wilberforce, the, the great abolitionist, had a good friend of his who was somewhat a nominal Christian, really wasn't a believer. The prime minister of Great Britain at the time, William Pitt the Younger. And Wilberforce had a great relationship with him and desired that William Pitt would know Christ. And so he would often invite him to come here preaching with him. And on one occasion, Wilberforce, it was a tremendous sermon that ministered to him greatly. And the whole time he's listening to his sermon, he's thinking about, oh, this is perfect. This is the perfect sermon for my friend to hear. And during the sermon, he's praying for him. And as they leave, his friend comments that he really had no idea what the preacher was talking about. He was spiritually blind, still hardened. He hadn't been recreated. He hadn't experienced regeneration. It is regeneration, it is a new birth in which holiness begins. John Murray said, Regeneration is the inception of holiness and sanctification is the continuation. Now here the Apostle Paul in taking off the old self and putting on the new, he's using the metaphor of changing clothes. Removing filthy garments and dirty garments and putting on clean and new garments. We need to be clear, he doesn't mean that we have multiple identities to put off and on. We don't have the old self to put on Saturday night and have a great time and then the new self to put on Sunday morning as we prepare to church. Paul's describing what happened when we were saved and the lifelong work of sanctification. Some of you may find yourself frustrated in taking off the old. Some of you, there are aspects of the old that just ripped right off when you came to Christ and you've never seen them again in your life. But most of us, I think, would say there's parts of the old self that cling, remnants of our depravity that we try to remove and they just don't fall to the floor. Instead, we experience often a slow, painful unraveling of the old self as we try to remove what remains. 
There's many life-dominating sins represented in this room this morning. There's many life-dominating sins represented among Christians this morning. Alcoholism, gambling, overeating, pornography, serial adultery, same-sex attraction, gossipers, pride, and we could go on and on. Many of you have experienced that. And removing the old self, it's one painful thread at a time. And you've known these sins your whole life and they feel so tied to your identity. The Apostle Paul says that you have new life in Christ now. Your Savior says you are no longer defined by your sin. He says, it is your relationship to me that defines the real you. Christian burdened with sin, frustrated by your progress, your Savior says to you today, bring the old to me. I have paid for it. I have broken its dominion over your life. And I have the power for you to live in your new identity in me. Amen? Let us ask for God's blessing on the preaching of God's word. Let us pray together. Our great God, answer us in our day of trouble. Send help from your sanctuary. Give support to your people. Rejoy the, renew the joy of our salvation. That we might bring shouts of joy for your deliverance. We believe that the Lord saves his own. We believe that he who began a good work in us will complete it. So we cry to you this morning. And we believe that you will answer from your holy heaven. And that your hand is mighty to save. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.